Amen. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, worship team. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 as we continue our walk through uh, the book of Genesis. You know, over the past several weeks of studying Noah, I've been challenged by his faith. I've been convicted by his patience. I've been uplifted by his obedience. And so you can imagine as I came to this passage, I was grieved. Not that I was surprised by the, the passage. I, obviously, I know the story of Noah, but it almost felt more personal as I'd spent so much time studying him so closely over these past several weeks. And the question that was going through my mind, kept going through my mind, is how in the world could this great man of faith, this man who came from a great family of faith, who had demonstrated so much obedience, so much self-discipline, who had seen the judgment of God towards sin. Obviously, Noah knew how God felt towards sin. How in the world does he now find himself in a place of shame? You know, and if I felt that way, as I'm just reading this passage, I began to think, I wonder what Mrs. Noah felt. I wonder what his family felt. I wonder what his friends felt. Probably no one within that culture more prominent, no person within that community of greater significance. And the reality is, if we've walked with God any length of time, we've all experienced something like this. Someone that we admired, somebody that we looked up to, somebody that we uh, there had impacted our life in a powerful way, and at a certain point or another, they let us down. They, they disappointed us. And it's a good reminder uh, that we should never rest our hopes on other sinful men and women, that we, we're all sinners. We, 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 we all have flaws. Any casual reading of the Old Testament reveals that every great hero of the faith had some level of flaws, that uh, some we would say probably more prominent than others, but all of them had flaws. Abraham let other men walk off with his wife on, on two separate occasions, and he did so just to save his own skin. Um, Jacob, better part of his life, was known as a, a deceiver. In fact, his name meant deceiver. Moses um, had a problem controlling his temper. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon had a problem with women. And as we're learning this morning, Noah, it appears, had a bit of a problem with drinking. And I don't know about you, but to some extent, it, it's comforting. Not, not as a justification for sin or, or moral failings, but it's comforting to know that these great men and women of God in Scripture that were used by God in a great way, they struggled too. That you and I are not alone, even as Paul said in Philippians, not that I've already attained all this or already been made perfect. Paul says, I still struggle with sin. I haven't made it yet. And that's immensely comforting to me. We all have struggles. We all have issues. We all have weaknesses. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That Noah, just like us, has the capacity to sin. He, like all of us, is just one step away from stupid. And in a moment of weakness, he's going to make a really dumb decision that will not just impact him. It's going to impact a lot of people around him. 
And what will the response of God be? Will, is God going to look at this and say, wow, that caught me by surprise. This has messed up the whole plan to save the world through the seed of the woman. No, God's purposes will not be stopped. In the midst of this sin that leads to a curse, the promise still stands. Isn't this good to know today that despite all our sin, despite all our our mistakes, despite all of our faults and failures, God is still able to turn them around for our good and for his glory and still accomplish his perfect plan. That's what we call grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. So let's pray together, then we're going to work our way through this passage. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before your word this morning. As we come before your word, we realize that this is no ordinary book. This is the divinely inspired word of God. We desire you to speak to us today. God, as a result of having spent time in your word today, I pray that we'd be changed pray that you would do business in our hearts. You'd mold us. You'd shape us more and more in the image of Christ. Where encouragement is needed, I pray that you would encourage. Where strength is needed, I pray that you would strengthen. Where rebuke is needed, I pray that you would rebuke. But God, draw us to yourself. We need you today. Holy Spirit, speak to us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me. Chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verses 18 and 19. So look there, verses 18 and 19. It says, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These are the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. So here we see Noah as the fountainhead of the human race, Uh, much like Adam. You could almost say a second Adam right here. And Moses, who's writing this, mentions these three sons, but he also mentions one grandson. He mentions Canaan. And the question is, why this one grandson? Well, what uh, is occurring here is a foreshadowing. It's always important to remember who is the original author of this and who is he writing to. Well, it's written by Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit, and it's written originally to the Israelites. And it's written to them as they are entering into the promised land. And as they're entering into the promised land, that promised land is filled with a group of people known as what? Known as Canaanites. And God is going to instruct Israel to wipe them all out. And I would imagine the people of Israel are saying, God, that sounds a little harsh. And it even sounds a little harsh to us. And the question is, what is God doing? Well, what God is doing here in Genesis 9 is he's explaining to the people of Israel that these Canaanites, they are not an innocent people. They are a sinful, immoral people who will most fully manifest the sin of their father Ham. And more than this, they are the enemies of God's people. What have we learned in Genesis 3.15? We learned that there's going to be this ongoing conflict between the people of God and the people of Satan, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Well, what do we see right here? That even though there's a fresh start and there's a new beginning after the flood, what's occurring? The battle is continuing. The tale of these two seeds continues. And so God's judgment towards the Canaanite people is traced back here to a curse 
that God delivered through Noah as a result of Ham's sin. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But look then at verse 20. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. So time has passed here. Commentators uh, speculate somewhere between 20 and 50 years has passed. The population of the earth is now growing rapidly. And Noah goes back to his old job. He goes back to doing what he was doing prior to building the ark. He goes back to gardening and cultivating the ground, providing for his family. And then look with me at verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. That here we see Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Here we see a blameless man. Here we see a preacher of righteousness, Peter tells us. A man who walked with God finds himself in a place of total shame. And it's interesting to me, the commentators, they try to, try to help Noah out, that, that maybe Noah didn't understand fermentation. Some talk about the, can, the water canopy, and maybe it didn't allow for fermentation. Maybe he didn't understand all the effects of drinking. And as I'm reading those things, you know what I want to say? Stop it. Do you know why Noah finds himself passed out drunk naked in his tent? Because Noah is a sinner. Just like all of us, he's been infected by the sin of Adam and Eve. And the flood has not solved the sin problem, has it? And listen, the flood was never intended to, to solve the problem of sin. It's not like God sees the situation with Noah and says, oh my goodness, it didn't work out as I planned. I intended that flood to wipe it all out. And here it's reared its ugly head again. No, the flood was never intended to solve the sin problem of man. The flood was intended to demonstrate God's righteous indignation towards sin that God judges unrepentant sinners. The flood has done exactly what God intended it to do. He never intended, intended it to solve the sin issue. In a similar way, he never intended government to solve the sin issue. You remember last week in the beginning of chapter 9, verse 6, we see the formation of government. But then yet, what do we see here? We still see sin. Government was never intended to solve the problem of sin. It was intended to restrain sin and evil, but not to solve it. Here again, we're reminded that there is only one solution to the problem of man's sin. And it is the seed of the woman who will come and die for the sins of man, defeat sin, Satan, and death, and we know that person to be Jesus Christ. So here we see, after the flood, this fresh start with the world, sinfulness in man is going to continue. Now the question that I had is, what would cause Noah to find himself within this precarious situation? Well, the simple answer is that it appears that he liked to drink. And I want to be careful here because I think there's a, a more general explanation to what's going on, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, but I think we would be remiss to not say here that there is a stern warning against drinking here and alcohol. And again, I'm not going to travel down that path, but let me say this. What we know today is that in the midst of this quarantine, the, the alcohol sales have dramatically increased. And if there's anything you see here, it's this, that you are playing with fire, that this great man of faith is going to be taken out because of his like of the drink. 
But more generally, he's going to disobey God, bring shame upon himself, upon God and his family because of his flesh. That's the more general answer. That his desire of the flesh is going to lead him to disobey God and bring shame upon himself, God and his family. And can that still happen today? That a man's desire for money, for prestige, for power, laziness, lust, adultery, anger, get in his way of obedience to God and destroy his family and his witness? This is a sorrowful picture, but I'd submit to you today that it's a far too common picture. And we're going to see more of this as we move throughout Genesis. And by the way, to me, this speaks to the divine nature of Scripture because Scripture doesn't pull any punches when it gives us a description of the great heroes of our faith. That the Bible is constantly reminding us there's only one hero in the story of the Bible, and it is Jesus. But as we look at Noah here, before, before any of us go shaking our heads in disgust for Noah's weaknesses, we need to be reminded that one of the most powerful lessons of Noah's life here is that none of us are immune. That if Noah, a great man of God, a great man of faith and obedience, can give into his flesh, then but for the grace of God, there go I. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13, now these things happen to them. It's talking about some of these Old Testament heroes. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you or overtaken you, but such that is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So listen, I don't care who you are today. I don't care what great things you've done for God. I don't care who your parents are. I don't even care how much Bible you have memorized. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. Be warned today, lest you fall. You better not let your guard down. You better fight your flesh by means of the word and the spirit, or you too might find yourself in a similar place to Noah. And what's interesting is you read this narrative, as bad as Noah's sin was, God puts at least as as much emphasis, you could argue even more emphasis, on Ham's response to the sin than he does the sin itself. Look with me at verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Now, Ham, more than likely, uh, came upon his father unexpectedly. And the problem with Ham is not his stumbling in upon his father's sin. His sin is found in, in the fact that he delighted in what he saw, and he was more than willing to share the sin and the shame of his father with anyone who would listen and specifically hear his brothers. That the delight of his father's sin... And his joy in telling his brothers demonstrates a disrespect and a rebellion towards the authority of his father. That this is the very opposite of what later would become known as the fifth commandment. 
Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long upon the earth. That there is a level of authority that God has given to fathers and for children to be disrespectful towards their parents is a sin. Parents, this is a good word for us to hear today. My boys in my house, they know that they can get away with a lot of things, but one of the things they will not do in our house is they will not speak disrespectfully towards their mother. And those same two boys know because their mama has told them and corrected them that in a similar way, they're not gonna speak disrespectfully to their father. And I know it's common today to sit around and make jokes about the faults and the failures of our fathers. Most sitcoms today will make a mockery of dads. And I wanna be clear this morning, that is sinful behavior. It's okay to joke around, but to be disrespectful to an authority that God has put in your life is a sin. And if that is the culture of your home, don't be surprised if that sin doesn't come, bear, come back to bear uh, some negative consequences in your life. So to be clear, what Noah did was sinful. He messed up and there is no excuse for his sin. But Ham, uh, in his lack of grief over his father's sin, in his delight in it, he was engaging in sinful behavior. Instead of seeking to cover his father's shame, he went and told others. And you can tell a lot about a person in how they respond to the sin and the shame of other people. When a righteous man falls, the unrighteous gloat over it. Well, Ham's brothers, what we're going to see on the other hand, they will refuse to participate in this activity. Look with me at verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. You have a totally different reaction from Shem and Japheth. They go overboard. They take every necessary precaution to bring no more shame upon their father and their actions, I want to be clear, their actions were not a license to cover up the immoral behaviors of men. That is not at all the picture that we should see here. The idea is that when a brother or sister sins, how we respond to that sin says a lot about the condition of our own heart. Really, I think what we see here is a test of godliness, whether or not you're a part of the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent, whether you're not a part of God's people or Satan's people, at least to some extent here, is revealed by how we respond when others fall into sin. Are we amused? Are we appalled? Do we laugh or do we grieve? Is it horrific or is it humorous? Do we share the uh, salacious details with anyone who will listen and shout it to the rooftops, or do we prayerfully share only with those with whom it's necessary to address the issue? Ham had no respect for his father, no shock uh, towards sin. Shem and Japheth, on the other hand, were respectful towards their father even in his sin, not disregarding the sin, but being grieved by the nature of it and its consequences. Look at verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Noah wakes, 
He realizes something is not right. He inquires probably of Shem and Japheth, and they make him aware. And now he's aware of what his youngest son had done, that Ham had seen him in his nakedness and was freely sharing with others. Well, look at verses 25 and 27. There will be consequences. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to others. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a servant. Here we see uh, both a curse and a promise. More specifically, we see a messianic promise. So first, we see a curse upon Canaan, the fourth son of Ham. Now, at first glance, I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem fair, does it? Canaan didn't sin. Ham sinned. So the question is, why in the world is Canaan cursed for something his dad did? Well, I believe my interpretation of this is that Noah is looking prophetically into the future to see that Canaan is going to most fully manifest the sin of his father, Ham. That this propensity that was in Ham to delight in sexual immorality that was manifest in him would be most fully manifest in his son, Canaan. And so what Noah is saying to Ham, really more specifically to Canaan, is what has budded in your dad will blossom in you. And so the the picture that we should see here is not that, that Canaan was some pure, innocent little fellow who gets struck with a curse. No, what we see here is that parents influence children. And the the, the sin of Ham that was expressed in moderation here will be demonstrated in excess in Canaan's life. And boy, is that not a good reminder for us as parents that oftentimes what we do in moderation will become excessive in our children. And if you look down through Scripture and You take note of the Canaanite people in Scripture. And when we learn even what has been produced in archaeology, you'll find that these Canaanite people were some of the most immoral people to ever walk the face of the earth. The things that they did and the practices that they engaged in, if we were to address them here, they would be far too embarrassing. And listen, be reminded, this would have been uh, immensely significant to Moses and to the people of God, the people of Israel, as they entered into the promised land that was filled with these Canaanite people. Do you see the picture here? God is instructing them to value moral purity and to be ruthless when it comes to sin. Don't you let immorality hang around your camp. Don't become complacent towards indecency and the horrific nature and consequences of sin, and specifically here, sexual sin. And boy, I think this is a practical, relevant word for, for our culture today. We have become immersed within a culture that has inundated us with a lot of sexual immorality. And if we're not careful, we too will become desensitized to the nature of it. God is warning the people of Israel, these Canaanites, you be careful. They are an immoral people. You'd be ruthless towards sin. 
And I think it's important to note here that the specific curse is upon Canaan. This is not a curse upon the entire line of Ham, as some have made it out to be. The Canaanite people will become the servants of Shem. That is the curse, the the servants of Shem. Does this come to fruition? We'll see also uh, Joshua when the Israelites will conquer the Canaanite people and as scripture says, they will become hewers of wood and drawers of water. God's curse comes to fruition in these Canaanite people. Well, secondly, we see a promise given to Shem And note when the promise comes to Shem and the blessing comes to him, it says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Not blessed be Shem, but blessed be the Lord. And that word Lord there, remember, that's the personal covenantal name of God. That Shem is going to be blessed, but he will only be blessed because of his connection and his relationship to God. That what we see here is that Shem will be God's people. We know these to be the Semitic people. That there is a covenantal relationship between God and the seed of Shem. And what we're going to continue to see as we move out from Genesis chapter 3. You remember with God's promise to send the seed of the woman. You will continually see as we move through scripture. A covenantal relationship between God and a successive line of individuals. So Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, God raises up Seth. And then we see that line of Seth and Noah. And now we see it in Shem. That right here, what we are, we're at the fountainhead of the messianic promise. And as we move further through scripture, we will begin to focus in on one individual. And what do we know right now? Whoever comes claiming to be the Messiah, we can just get through Genesis 9 and know that they must be the son of Adam, they must be the son of Seth, they must be the son of Noah, and now even more specifically, they must be of the line of Shem. And then thirdly, we see a promise for Japheth, that God would enlarge Japheth, that Japheth will spread out. There's a promise here for space and and territory, and we know that the Japhethites will spread out uh, throughout the western hemisphere as we move through history. And we will have a part, and he or the Japhethites will have a part in the blessing. It says, may he dwell in the tents of Shem. Again, what do we see here? He has a part in the blessing, but only in as much as he's connected to Shem and the people of God. That really what, what you have here is an outline of the religious history of the world. That what we see here is that the nations are not going to seek God and the only place of safety, the only true place of refuge will be in the tents of Shem, the seed of the woman, the seed of Seth and Noah and Shem. One man. And through the course of history and biblical revelation, who do we know that person to be? It points us to one person, Jesus Christ. Now, as we conclude here, I want to give you some some application. First of all, I just want to give you some practical application of this text. There's some truths and principles in this narrative that are so applicable to our life, we need to see them. Number one, we already said it earlier, but no one is immune to moral failure. No one is immune to moral failure. He who stands, take heed lest he fall. And let me speak very practically to fathers. 
Because this passage teaches us that bad things happen when we drop the ball. And Noah's sin as a father will not just impact him, it will impact his family. That what we see here is Noah's failure will put his wife and his children in a bad place that they never should have been. Fathers, we have a responsibility given to us by God that is weighty, that should cause us to cling to God even more tightly than anybody else, knowing that when we fall, it has huge repercussions on our home. The question is then, what do we do? Well, number one, if you found yourself in a place of shame where you've dropped the ball, can I just encourage you today, repent of your sin. There's grace, there's forgiveness, there's freedom, there's mercy. This is the great thing about God. You turn to him, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Today can be a new day for you. It's never too late to change the trajectory of your life and to change your legacy. Repent of your sin, turn to God. But let me say this as well. For all of us, as dads and fathers, we better stay really close to God. You've heard me say this hundreds of times here at Lenexa Baptist Church, and it's worth saying again. It will never get old, and I'm going to keep saying it. Read your Bible. It has often been said that this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. You have no greater protection in your life than to immerse yourself in the Word of God. David in Psalm 19, when he's talking about the Word of God, he says it's sweeter than honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by it your servant is warned, and in keeping it there is great reward. And then he goes on to say, who can discern his errors? And then he says, equip me of my hidden faults. Let them not rule over me. Forgive me of presumptuous sins, he says. That David knew that I have a propensity to sin. And I don't know in what way I could be tripped up today, but I know that my only means of protection is the word of God. And so why, it's why you see over and over again, as David gives us the Psalms, he encourages us to delight in the law of the Lord and in his law to meditate both day and night. Be familiar with the word of God. But even beyond that, be disciplined. 1 Corinthians 9, I think of this often when Paul said I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after having preached to others I myself might not be disqualified Paul one of the great heroes of the faith 
said, I can disqualify myself. And for that reason, boy, I beat my body and I make it my slave. This applies to all of us as believers. But with the specific nature of this text, I want to speak very directly to fathers and dads, myself included. Let's stay close to God. Let's discipline our lives so that we might be effective for the Lord. Then another practical principle is this. How we respond to the sins of others says a lot about the spiritual condition of our own heart. We need to be very careful when people around us fall into sin. You know, as I thought about this, I pray that we would never gloat over it. I pray that we'd never delight in it, and I pray that we'd never get caught gossiping about it. And I pray in every situation where we see a brother or sister who might be falling into sin, but that we would be a part of the solution and not the problem. That we would seek in every way necessary and every way available to restore them, to pray for them, to forgive them, and to bring no further shame upon them than what is necessary. God help us to continue to see the horrific nature of sin, to grieve over it when other brothers or sisters fall, and to help lift them back up so that they might be effective for the Lord again. But then finally, let, me, let us think about the theological application of this text. This is powerful when you read this story. There's so many similarities between Adam and Noah. Both Adam and Noah are the fountainheads of the human race. Both of them are given the command, be fruitful and multiply. Both of them were gardeners. Both of them were farmers. Both of them ate of the tree or a vine that they should not have partaken of. Both of them disobeyed God. Both of them fell into sin. Both of them were made aware of their nakedness and their shame. Both of them were covered with a garment that was not their own. And coming out of both of their situations, there was a curse and a promise to redeem. That what we see here is that sin will not stop God from fulfilling his divine plan. And that divine plan involves sending one man, a perfect man, a God man, who will defeat sin, Satan, and death. And he is the only solution to our sin problem. We're going to see this, this narrative run throughout Scripture. And the beauty of it is overwhelming, folks, the cohesive Nature of Scripture is overwhelmingly beautiful. You've got, when you think about the Word of God, we're just at the beginning of it, but if you move your way through, you've got 40 human authors, fishermen, businessmen, shepherds, scribes, two languages, Hebrew and Greek, and a smattering of Aramaic. You've got six different civilizations, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. 1,500 years separate Moses from the gospel of John. 15 centuries. And yet from Moses to John, they are all saying the same thing. That God loves man. And yet man rebels and sins. And yet God still loves man. And he has chosen to redeem him by the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. Don't you dare tell me that this book is not divine. 
It may have 40 human authors, but there's only one divine author, and it is God. But beyond this, think about this with me. Before the foundation of the world, knowing the sinfulness of man, God had already decided that he would do whatever is necessary to buy you back. As we continue to move through Genesis, the plan of God will be revealed, but you'll realize that it was a plan made in eternity past. Meaning before the world was made, God loved you and he was for you. When you were ruined in the fall, God still loved you and he was for you. When you were against God and you didn't want him, he loved you and was for you. And despite all your failures, despite all your faults, nothing would stop God from fulfilling his promise to send his son to die on a cross for your sins. I am here to tell you today on the basis of God's word from the very beginning of time, God is for you. If he were not for you, he would not have sent his son to die for you. He is eternally and immutably immutably for you. And he hears the voice of those who cry out to him. And what we continue to see revealed throughout scripture is God is not looking for a perfect people. He knows all your sins and you cannot hide from him. Like Noah, you are a sinner. God is not looking for perfect people. He is looking for a people who will cry out to his perfect son, Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman, the seed of Seth, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, ultimately David, the person, Jesus Christ. The one promised from eternity past. And in him and in him alone is salvation. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And through faith in him, listen to me, we can have peace with God. And we can have the presence and the promise of God's presence forever. I'm here to tell you this morning, there is nothing in this world that will take you through the most difficult trials of life than knowing God and his son Jesus Christ and to know that he is for you. If you don't know the God of all creation, who from eternity past loved you and had a plan to save you through the giving of his son Jesus. If you do not know that God through faith in Jesus Christ, can I challenge you today? Trust him. He is for you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that is so beautiful. It is divine. And God, we are so grateful that from eternity past, you had a plan. A plan that knew all about our sin, knew all about our disobedience and all our rebellion. And yet in spite of all that, a plan that included the giving of your son Jesus so that we could have a relationship with you. God, I pray for anybody that's listening to this this morning that doesn't know you've never placed their faith in your son Jesus for their salvation. God, I pray that they would see there's only salvation in him. The flood didn't wipe out sin, didn't solve sin. Government, it couldn't solve sin. We'll learn later 
The law couldn't solve the sin problem. All the way from the very beginning, you've declared it. There's only one solution. It's the person, Jesus Christ. The God-man who condescended to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sins. God, if there's anybody, I, I pray, Lord, if there's anybody this morning that doesn't know you, that's listening, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that they would trust in your son, Jesus. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would be encouraged today, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, that you're God of grace. You're the God who has the ability to take all of our sins, all of our faults, all of our failures, and turn them around, redeem them for our good and for your glory. So God, I pray if there's anybody listening today, they know you, but they've fallen. Maybe they've found themselves in a place of sin and shame. God, I pray that they would know today you love them and you are for them. Your love is unconditional. And if they will turn to you today, there is forgiveness. There's restoration. There's freedom. The story's not over yet. God, I pray that they would return to you. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.